From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's episode will take us into the world of the arts through a conversation with a dynamic and optimistic leader in the field, Vanessa Cooksey. Vanessa is the president and CEO of the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis, or RAC, the largest public funder of the arts in that great city. In our conversation today, we'll learn more about Vanessa's remarkable and diverse background, as well as her thoughts about the important role that the arts play in our society and the ways in which being uplifted by creating and appreciating art can help us all lead more hopeful and optimistic lives. Vanessa Cooksey has more than 25 years of business and civic leadership experience. She's held marketing, communications, and philanthropy leadership positions with a variety of organizations. Vanessa's humanitarian efforts have helped promote and advance human welfare and social reform across the United States. And she's served on multiple local and national nonprofit boards, including the SIFMA Foundation for Investor Education, Harris Stowe State University, Vote Run Lead, and Mercy Hospitals. Vanessa earned her bachelor's degree in radio, television, and film from the University of Texas at Austin, and a master's degree in business administration from Webster University. And as you'll hear, she studied and traveled extensively in Europe, Africa, and Asia. Vanessa has received more than 50 awards for her industry and community work, including the 2018 St. Louis American Corporate Executive of the Year. You'll soon understand why she's earned all these accolades, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Vanessa Cooksey, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. It is an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And of course, I've done my research, and you have worked at a wide range of organizations. And just for fun, I'm going to rattle a few off. Washington University in St. Louis, Spire Energy, Wells Fargo, Anheuser-Busch InBev, Super Value Stores, Cartoon Network, Office of the Mayor of Atlanta, CNN News Source, and the Atlanta Committee for Public Education. I probably left some off. So it's an incredibly diverse background. And my first very basic question is, how did you wind up becoming the CEO of the Regional Arts Commission, or RAC, in St. Louis? Thank you for that question. I believe that this is divinely ordered. Everything that I've done has landed me in this place. I'll tell a a quick story. My sophomore year in high school, I went to see the movie Malcolm X. And I came home, I sat my parents down on the couch and I said, me and Spike Lee are going to make movies and change the world. And I'm so grateful that my parents, they looked a bit perplexed, but they said, okay, if that's what you want to do, we'll support you. And I went to the University of Texas, got a film degree, senior year realized that 40 Acres and a Mule was headquartered in Brooklyn, New York. And as a Texan, that's not somewhere I wanted to live. So the next best thing was to move to Atlanta, Georgia, to work for the Cartoon Network. 
And this was very early and I had an opportunity to really explore media and entertainment from a digital perspective for the dot-com side right before the AOL Time Warner merger happened and found myself first job out of college, dream job laid off. And that really having that skill and choosing the new path of digital media gave me an opportunity to work in the mayor's office as the webmaster. And then from the mayor's office back to Cartoon Network, part of my mission in life is to solve community problems through collaboration and company resources. And so looking at ways that I could make a difference through my work has really been what has driven my career. And so left Cartoon, moved to St. Louis to tackle new social issues. And in each company, I've had an opportunity to really grow. So now at the Regional Arts Commission, investing in artists and arts organization, it feels like a full circle moment because I've had the entertainment experience, the government experience, and the corporation philanthropy experience that all come together at RAC. Beautiful. Well, and uh, we'll get more to rack in a second, but you said the word community. And when I did my research, if I had one of those word clouds, which I didn't, community might have been right at the center of it. And so it seems to be a unifying sort of force or factor for you. Where where do you think that comes from? Is it your upbringing? Is it just your, why community? Community is so important. It is It is how I'm wired and it absolutely comes from my upbringing. I am very blessed that I grew up in a family of unconditional love. And it's certainly not the, oh, we love you pedestal. It's we love you in spite of yourself sometimes. We love you. We make sacrifices to get you here. My mother um, actually had uh, two miscarriages before me. I was born premature and two after me. And so her tenacity, right, to to want a family, um, it's it's part of how I'm wired. You know, my grandparents and my extended family all have significant influence in my life. And I grew up in a home of unconditional love and art. And one of the things I love most about art, it is a communal activity, whether it's the making, the receiving of art uh, is best done with others. And so um, my dad was an entrepreneur uh, and an artist. He played the saxophone. So I just feel like community and art is is in my DNA. And and so the Regional Arts Commission, I've learned more about in preparation for this. They don't exist all over the country, for sure. I don't think. Uh, it, could you explain what you're all about, what the organization is all about, how it works, and what your priorities are as the CEO? Absolutely. So the Regional Arts Commission was founded in 1985. And the reason why I love it so much is because it was created by a vote of the people. St. Louis is an arts town. And the residents of St. Louis said arts will not be a luxury here. And so they voted for hotel motel sales tax, a percentage of hotel motel sales tax, to be allocated to the Regional Arts Commission that we then turn into grants for artists and arts organizations. And so we've had nearly 40 years of consistent 
capital that we've invested with artists and arts organizations that have grown this artistic community in St. Louis to one of world class. Interesting. So, and, and so you get the fun part, you get the fun job of allocating these funds. Is that, is that fair to say? You are, your organization over which you preside? Absolutely. The Regional Arts Commission offers grants and programs. And the thing that makes us unique is that we put the public in public arts. So residents of St. Louis, we train them to review grants uh, for artists and arts organizations. We give general operating support. And, you know, you've been connected to community organizations and nonprofit. You know how important operating support grants are because oftentimes people just want to focus on the programs. Well, we know particularly for artists that that operating support is so important. And so once, twice a year, we allow arts organizations and artists to apply. We review those grants and then we disperse the funds. And then we have a series of wraparound programs that help artists and arts organizations think about their work from the business perspective. Right. People tend to forget that, that art, you gotta, everyone's got to make a living <laughs> and, and that's often yes. very challenging <laughs> to do. So it sounds like you, you can provide that extra support for people as they create this beautiful work to actually make a living and be an artist as a profession. Yes. And the one thing that I appreciate most about uh, the residents of St. Louis and our elected leaders and business leaders, they also know arts is big business. More people come to St. Louis for our arts than all sports combined. We're often known as, you know, Cardinals Nation and we've got the blues. We've got great sports in this town, but 12 million people a year come to St. Louis because the arts are open every single day. Vanessa Cooksey has taken an interesting path to her current position with many unexpected twists and turns. She's a great example of the power of resilience in the face of setbacks, like being laid off after the disastrous AOL Time Warner merger. She learned these skills from her parents who faced plenty of sadness and tragedy themselves. And Vanessa's can-do attitude is clearly one of her great personal strengths. And while she's held a wide variety of roles in both the public and private sectors, her North Star has always been serving her community. Getting back to our conversation, I asked Vanessa to talk about what she sees as the role of the arts in contributing to the well-being of individual people and the society at large. Oh my gosh, this is, uh, that is one of my favorite questions uh, for three reasons. Number one, I believe deeply that humans were created by the creator to be creative. We, we come to earth. You can't spell heart without the word art. So I believe it is human birthright to be creative and express. So all humans have the capacity to create. So we have to do that as part of our well-being. The other important thing is that it is, it's a team effort, bringing people together and particularly since COVID and our experience of isolation and loss, art has been at the forefront of the recovery. I'll tell a quick story. In my neighborhood, I had been home with my husband and my son on lockdown and had just kind of had enough of the togetherness. And I went outside 
And one of my neighbors had set up a mini concert series in his front yard. He had a drummer, a guitar player. He was singing and neighbors were coming out of their house, even socially distanced outside, just enjoying the music. And what art does is provide a safe and meaningful escape. You can be in a movie theater with complete strangers locked into an experience of no judgment, unconditional love. And we need that in our lives. Yes. It's funny you said movie theater because one of the things I was thinking, and I'd like to talk to you more about the pandemic, but coming out of it, let's hope we're out of it. When, when the Top Gun sequel came out, and I don't know if you saw it in the theater, but Tom Cruise recorded a specific welcome, you know, welcome back to the theater, welcome back to seeing movies the way they're me- needed, they were meant to be seen. And it was powerful. And you're sitting for the, you, you, I think we sort of forgot how much we missed it. I know I did. There's something about that communal appreciation of any work of art, whether it's a fun sequel movie like that, or just a breathtaking painting or whatever it is. There's something very special about that, that can't be duplicated anywhere else. I don't think. Absolutely. Movie theaters, theaters with performing arts like dance and plays, you know, just being in a space with the lights down, focused on something other than your day-to-day problems. I mean, if if the experience of art doesn't generate optimism, I don't know what else, you know, can in a way that is so moving and in some ways life-saving. And that's why I love what I do because Part of why I'm also here is that art literally saved my life. Um, I was very close to my father. I'm close to my parents. We're a real small family. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in May of 1996, and he passed in January of 1997. So pancreatic cancer back then was, you know, didn't have the treatments, didn't know. It was terrible. And I remember... Not long after my father passed, I was still at the University of Texas and I was driving from Dallas to Austin and a tidal wave of tears came over me because just the grief was so, so heavy. I'm 19 years old, lost my best friend. You know, all of us have experienced a level of loss where we just feel helpless and I'm driving, I'm crying and there's a split at the intersect where I-35 goes south or, or west. And in a moment, I was looking and I said, if I just tilt this steering wheel a little bit to the left, I could make this whole pain go away. And it, it shook me. And I never thought that that could be a possibility for me. But all of us have experienced a level of grief where we just want the pain to go away. And in that moment, a song came on the radio. It was actually a Kirk Franklin song. And I heard it and it expressed what I was feeling. It was like, don't, the song was, don't take my joy away. And it was just enough where I kept driving. I'm still crying, but I just believe deeply in my heart that there are humans who have stories to tell, songs to sing, poems to say that were created to help somebody else in their moment, whether it's to get over a rough spot or to celebrate something amazing. And I'm very grateful for the work that I do because I get to invest in the artists and the arts organizations that can bring that to life for people.
Vanessa's story about losing her father and a song on her car stereo helping convince her not to take her own life is really powerful. And I love the way she talks about the human need to tell stories and to help people. And of course, we here in the studios of the Optimism Institute love hearing Vanessa say, quote, if the arts don't generate optimism, I don't know what does. We couldn't agree more. Now, back to our conversation. I know one of the things you all support is keeping arts education in schools. And it's something that I I have a real interest in. And it seems that when budgets are tight in, in schools, arts are often one of the first things to go. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, we all worry about the mental health of our kids growing up especially with the distractions of cell phones and all that sort of thing. So could you tell, tell us your, your views on education, arts and education, and what you all do to support it with RAC? Absolutely. We uh, provide grants to arts organizations that bring programming into schools, K-12 education, working with young people, not just a matter of learning how to color in the lines, actually quite the contrary, but the importance of self-expression, the importance of storytelling, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so 90% of the arts organizations that we fund have in-school programming. Many of the artists who receive grants are also teaching artists. And so they go into classrooms and they work with students. And what we know from research is Arts make you smarter. You can't spell smart without art. Can't spell earth without art either. So we can talk about the importance of art in the environment and public art. But when we talk about arts education, two things are really important. When people are engaged in creative expression, physical things are happening in your brain. It's actually expanding. You're using different parts of your brain. And we know that children who play instruments or have some form of artistic expression perform better in reading and math and all the things that uh, we measure. What's underneath that is the importance of art in making that real for people. And so we are, instead of RAC providing the programs, we provide the grants to the organizations and artists that bring that to life for students. And how's that going in St. Louis? Is arts education thriving in St. Louis? Is it always a challenge or how would you describe that? It's as with most cities, it's almost district by district. The St. Louis public schools has magnet schools that are focused on the arts and they've integrated arts into their curriculum. Other school districts that are smaller are struggling. And what RAC is positioning itself to do is to be a thought partner in arts education and make sure that we're bringing the relationships that we have with arts organizations and artists to the table so that if there's a need, we can fill it. And the other part of the conversation is the importance of creativity in business. Innovation is fueled by creativity and problem solving and making something out of nothing. And it's best to start encouraging and supporting young people in their creativity at an early age. So they're coming into the workplace, having tried something and failed and know how to handle failure, having received feedback from their work. You know, these are what sometimes we call soft skills, but they're really relationship skills. And all of us need that. And the arts are a great way to practice and learn that. It's, it's very much too, I think, one of the unique features or attributes of this country. You know, when you think about some of our best exports, the motion picture industry, or, or you mentioned um, art and business, I, I'm always reminded that Steve Jobs, I believe, either majored 
or it was a, it was a class in calligraphy that got him rethinking how the, the the Macintosh, you know, how ultimately computers should look on a screen. I mean, think about that. That was not a class in computer science. It was a class in calligraphy. Um, so I think it, I think it's extremely important. And I'm glad you're doing that work. One of the things um, I try to emphasize in the work that we're doing here is that optimists are not just, you know, always wearing rose colored glasses and the world's just going to get better. And, and you, you take on challenges and you weren't you weren't there very long, I don't think, at, at RAC before the pandemic. And uh, there aren't many you know, sectors of, of society, back to this also being a business, that were more impacted than, than the arts, especially performing arts. Can you tell us what that was like to get in this job and then have that happen? It was terrible. <laughs> But creatives, creatives are built for chaos. Creatives are are built for making a way out of no way. And I'm I'm grateful that in my career, in my life, I've been faced with lots of big challenges and have used my creativity to solve them. I joined RAC in November of 2020, and because we are funded 90 to 95 percent of our funding comes from hotel motel sales tax. We went from $7 million of annual revenue to $2 million over the course of months, 16 team members down to one. And so I came into the organization when things were literally falling apart and completely out of our control. And so in addition, as an organization who for 30 years experienced year over year revenue growth of at least 3%, for it to fall apart that quickly, we had to change everything. And I like to describe my experience at BRAC as I feel like I run a 38-year-old startup because what this devastating experience has provided is an opportunity to rebuild stronger, better, to do things we've never done before. And that is the essence of being optimistic and creative, seeing and visioning What's possible for our organization? Asking artists and arts organizations, what do you need? How can we help you to grow? Because in the same way we were losing our revenue, so were theaters and performing arts and artists. Commissions were canceled. Shows were canceled. This is zero revenue. And I have to remind people, the arts are still in recovery. Audiences haven't returned at the same rate as some other industries. And we didn't get the kind of supports from recovery funds that other industries have received. And so RAC is working to diversify its revenue and encourage other funding because our recovery is still happening. It's refreshing to hear the upbeat way Vanessa talks about overcoming challenges. And she says, creatives are built for chaos. As I thought more about this observation, I think we could say the same thing about optimists. Very often, things won't go our way or as we'd planned, but being built to rally, rethink, and regroup is vital to maintaining an optimistic mindset. Case in point here is the COVID-19 pandemic. I had my facts wrong. Vanessa didn't start at RAC before the pandemic, but actually in the depths of it. And hearing her describe this terrible setback as an opportunity to rebuild tells you all you need to know about her outlook and why she's been such a successful leader. Next, I wanted to know how Vanessa and her team at RAC approach trying to keep the arts relevant to younger people as well as adults from diverse backgrounds. 
One of the challenges too, I think the arts face, and it depends on the type of art, I suppose, but um, trying to keep young people in, uh, a more diverse audience in, making things affordable for everybody. Um, how do you take that on? I, I read something recently about folks are, are trying to redo classic operas and make them more contemporary and cool. And obviously, you know, Hamilton, it's, you know, hip hop rap <laughs> story about Alexander Hamilton. How, how do you think about that? And does that influence your funding to try to make sure that you're, you're keeping younger and more diverse audiences in the pipeline? Absolutely. And we encourage our arts organization, particularly those that are larger, more traditional arts. Our uh, St. Louis Symphony Orchestra a couple of weeks ago hosted the Black Panther and they had a huge movie screen. They showed the film in its entirety, but live scoring from the symphony. Yes. And it was so dynamic. And this is immersive experience of watching the film and watching the artist playing uh, the score was phenomenal. And one of the things that I love about arts and culture entertainment is it's very responsive to audiences. The audiences vote with their dollar (laughs) and you get instant feedback as to if something's working or not. And you come from television and ratings and people don't like it, they won't support it. And so We, as a funder of the arts, don't have to be heavy-handed in demanding that our organizations reach for DEI goals. The community, the audience, will tell you what they like, and we just want to support artists and arts organizations in being innovative and trying new things and having a safe space that if it doesn't work out, that's the value of transforming tax dollars into grants that that we can take on some of that risk. And so we are definitely in a place where our grant making is supporting innovation and our artists and arts organizations are responsive to doing new and creative things, especially in St. Louis. Yeah. So you, you partially answered the question I was going to ask, which is, I, I said before, you do the fun part of giving away money, but you also are saying no to people or giving them less than they hoped you would. <laughs> and I, so I'm sure you hear about that. How do you make these decisions? What are, what are the criteria that RAC uses? You know, how do you, because I can only imagine the number of opportunities to give money and there's only so much to go around. So what, what sort of filters do you put on these opportunities for giving? We are really mission focused and looking at uh, the impact of the work. We are very intentional about ensuring that the opportunity to apply is equitable, right? We don't want to set up barriers where large organizations always get large grants, but smaller organizations who are working on the ground with community can have their work known and supported by RAC but we're starting to ask new and different questions. So instead of, well, how many people were in the audience or how many children did you serve is what are some of the outcomes and benefits? You know, who have you helped? Whose lives have been changed? So getting into the story of the impact of the work that these arts organizations are doing. The other thing since I've been on board and with my corporate background and have a lot of experience uh, in board governance is asking about the fiscal stewardship and the operational stewardship of the organization, because it's not only about, you know, can we have a good play on stage, but do your board members contribute? Are they making good decisions? Do your board members know what's going on? 
Uh, so we're asking those kinds of questions. Do you have a diverse board? Because we know that people make decisions based in their experience. And so the more perspectives we have in that governance seat and the board governance really makes a difference in how the organization is managed and stewarded. So we're also asking questions about how they're stewarding their financial resources. Are you spending more money than you're making? (laughs) Um, That matters. So we're just bringing more of a business lens to our conversations with our artists and arts organizations so that they can sustain their work. We're trying to take the starving out of starving artists. Fascinating. And it it can't be easy, but but it's got to be fun once you do send that money to the ones who are the recipients. I, so I'd like to take us back now. I'm going to jump out of, of rack. And one of the things I read about you, you, you were given great praise for one of the, arguably one of the most difficult situations to ever happen in St. Louis was the Michael Brown tragedy in Ferguson. You were at Wells Fargo, back to community, I believe in community relations and you know, some people I don't think realize the, the incredible role that banks can play in the community. You know, they think, well, that's who my credit card's with and I go to the ATM. But banks are very involved in the community. And so here you were. And people, if you don't know, Ferguson is just outside St. Louis. You were the center of world news attention. It was tearing a community apart. Could you just tell me about what that was like for you, what your role was and, and how you responded to such a difficult challenge? Thank you for that question. It was definitely a um, a tremendous growth opportunity for me as a leader. Um, you know, experiencing something like that is very transformative because it's new and everybody's experiencing it in real time. And the two things that I'm most thankful for were the relationships that I built in the St. Louis community. Relationships are my jam. I'm really good at um, developing, maintaining uh, relationships and friendships. And so as the situation was unfolding, I reached out to Michael McMillan, who runs the Urban League, and I was like, what's going on? And to have a, a group, you know, he's, I've reached out to several community leaders um, in my role as, you know, the leader of Wells Fargo Philanthropy to just understand what was happening in real time. And the thing that I'm most proud of in terms of how Wells Fargo responded was the leadership allowed us to listen. And one of the things that I'm grateful for, listening is my superpower. That's what I do. I listen. And it would have been very easy to respond in the status quo. Oh, if we just write a $10,000 check, this will go away. Let's let's be first to write the check. And I said, we don't know what's going on yet. And we don't know what the needs are yet. Let's wait. There are other organizations who are well positioned to be first responders, right? As well as Fargo, with our mission of investing capital to make our communities better, Let's take this opportunity to just wait and listen to what the needs are. And so I'm so grateful that the leaders said, okay, we'll listen. And it was hard, particularly when you work with high performing leaders, we are quick to act and we want to do, and we want to move on to the next thing. And we asked the community, what do you need? And they said, we need jobs. And I was like, oh, okay, got it. 
And so we chose to invest in the Save Our Sons program, which was intentional about moving systems forward and having sustainable solutions. And that's not to say that all of the other uh, philanthropy dollars that were invested in community needs and, and other things weren't important. It takes all of it. This philanthropy work, community work is really a work of and. And when we start approaching it as an or, things get missed and real change doesn't happen. Transformation doesn't happen. And so I'm just grateful that the relationships we had gave us good information and that there was enough trust that we could wait and respond to a longer term need versus just reacting. We were able to respond. It's an incredible answer. And I, there's so much there. But one of the things that strikes me is this whole notion of waiting and listening. It just seems with any crisis, any event, any horrific thing that happens in the news, it's not only you need to do something, but it's like you need to do something now. And you need to put out a statement yesterday and you need to, it's like, we don't even know all the facts yet. <laughs> we don't know. And it's, it's fueled by traditional media and our alma maters. And it's fueled by obviously social media and, but it's, but you know, the ability to just say, hang on a second, let's just wait. <laughs> it, that's really refreshing to hear. And I can only imagine what it was like being proximate to that event as opposed to just, you know, most of us who saw it on television or it had to be quite a quite a scary time. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful that that really has been a theme of my leadership uh, in all of the community work that I've done. I remember when I was at Cartoon Network and we had to address the issue of childhood obesity. You know, they said kids are too fat because they're watching too much TV and the FCC was going to start regulating advertising to children's networks. And that's pretty scary from a revenue perspective. <laughs> so I, I tend to show up when revenue is being threatened. Right. And in most of my my career, whether it's Anheuser-Busch or wherever. And I said, OK, before we unleash all of our resources to figure out how to fight childhood obesity, let's talk to teachers. Let's talk to students. Let's talk to children. Let's talk to parents to understand. And we developed an advisory board of nonprofit organizations who were working in the space who had been there a long time, because that's another tenet of my uh, philosophy around philanthropic and community work. Talk to the people who are there first and listen because they often have the wisdom and the solution and the experience and they've tried and they have failed and they know what works and what doesn't. And so even when I was at Cartoon Network, we took a let's listen first and create a solution that works for the brand. That's something else that I love about corporate philanthropy in particular in the places where I've done it and even at RAC is the most sustainable solutions to community problems are when they're done inside of the purpose and mission of the organization, when they're they're consistent and aligned and relevant and resonant with the company and not, well, we'll just try this. Mm -mm, no, stay your lane, <laughs> do what works best, because then people can get excited about it. No, and also going into something like the childhood obesity and asking parents and, and teachers, there's nothing worse than the so-called experts showing up 
and <laughs> telling you what to do. And obviously you miss that. You got to be doing that. There is no bigger turnoff. There's no bigger uh, setup for failure. In my view, there are maybe some, but that's awful when people do that. So, so that's great advice for so many different situations, I think, is sort of ask questions first before you come in as the hired hand, you know, expert. As oftentimes my my thought in, in, in philanthropic work is we, we will ask people, so what do you need? And then they tell us, and then we do the opposite. It's like, no, 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 give the people what they want. <laughs> yeah, just, just give the people what they want. <laughs> Hearing Vanessa describe her experience in the days following the Michael Brown tragedy in Ferguson is fascinating. As I said, I'm really impressed by her ability to slow things down and try to understand what's going on and what the community needs are before jumping into action. We all can learn a lot from that lesson. In this instance, as well as her time at Cartoon Network taking on challenges around childhood obesity, she's wise to seek first to understand to ask questions of experts and the people she's trying to help before coming up with a plan. And now in this next segment, Vanessa will describe how an international fellowship changed her life for the better. Another part of your background I found interesting, and I, I'd heard of this, but I learned more about it preparing to speak with you today, that you were an Eisenhower fellow. And my sense is that was very impactful for you and your development as a, as a person, probably as a leader. Can you sort of tell us what is an Eisenhower Fellow and what was your experience like and what did you get from it? Oh, my gosh. It was completely life changing. So the Eisenhower Fellowships is a leadership development opportunity for mid-career professionals. And it started as a gift from President Eisenhower's friends. And they said, oh, what well, we're going to get our friend for his birthday. He's the president. What do you get a president? And he said, oh, let's do something um, that will encourage a more just and peaceful society because they knew their friend and that's what mattered. And so I was selected as part of the 2016 USA cohort. And it is both a professional and personal development program where I had the opportunity to study two topics that were deeply important to me personally and my leadership and how I wanted to impact and change the world. And at the time, those two topics were uh, women elected officials, which I've done a lot of work in that space and, and wanted to see our country with our first elected female president, um, still in the works, I hope, uh, and also um, preventing elder financial abuse. I love elders. I love spending time with elders and just soaking up the wisdom, just sitting at the feet listening is, it's my jam. And so um, particularly working at Wells Fargo, learning about the rapid increase in elder fraud and how elders who've worked their whole careers, stroke of a key on a keyboard, answering the wrong phone call. I mean, we all have someone in our family who has been tricked with their resources. And so that I wanted to solve that. So I spent time in Japan uh, because similar to St. Louis, they had an aging and declining population. And so I wanted the experience to mirror so I could come back and do something meaningful. So I spent two weeks in Japan, uh, spent time in nursing homes. And, uh, you know, they have 
so many centarians, people have lived to be over 100 years old and how they approach elders and the integration of art and spirituality. It was a phenomenal, life-changing experience. And so I came back home and developed a grant program for aging uh, organizations who served people who are aging. And we integrated a financial education component because as you're aging, nobody talks about how hard aging is, first of all. But you're rehaving, you're having to relearn so many things as we age and get over 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. So that was a phenomenal experience. Another thing that I think drives my optimism is sometimes I would just intentionally make myself uncomfortable <laughs> and put myself in an environment where I just have to figure it out and find a way. And when I'm in a country where I don't speak the language, uh, but the human connection that comes from people's innate willingness to help is just, it motivates me. Uh, the other part of my Eisenhower Fellowship, I spent time uh, two weeks in Rwanda and the level of devastation that happened in the country after the genocide uh, was unbelievable. And so I wanted to see what in the human spirit motivates and inspires that recovery. And so much so that 50 at the time, it was either 54 or 60 percent of their parliament were women. They actually wrote into the new constitution that 33 percent of the elected officials would be women. And they were at 60 percent. Like, how do you do that? You know, we're struggling here with a lot smaller numbers. <laughs> it's like, how do you pull this off? So I talked to so many policymakers and women who were elected and they said, we we built it into the system. And that's part of my work is systems change, right? We can do symptoms, but really transforming systems gives us the outcomes and the life we deserve. And the uh, it's a beautiful country. And the thing that I enjoyed most was I had the opportunity to go gorilla trekking in the Volcanoes Mountains. I'm not really an outdoor person. So you want to talk about putting yourself in a completely uncomfortable situation, <laughs> um, but the reward and that, you know, it's one of the reasons why I love the the title of this podcast, Blue, Sli Blue Sky, you know, getting your head above the clouds. When you're in the midst of trial, pain, and challenge, on the other side of that is transformative reward and growth that makes you just a better human. So, yes, my Eisenhower Fellowship was unbelievable. So if there's anyone out there, mid-career, and it's, I assume it's an online, you go online, there's an application process and spot, you know, references and all that sort of stuff, because it just sounds like an incredible experience. and. Uh, it's changed your life. It absolutely has. It absolutely. And I'm I'm an active alum, and and I'm very careful about uh, organizations that I align with, ensuring that you know our values match. Because I'm the kind of person, you know, once we're connected, you're kind of stuck with me. And so I'm an active alum in the Eisenhower Fellows community, fellows from countries across the world. And actually, one thing else I'll share about why Eisenhower was so important to me. I was taking time to reflect about the relationships and the people in my life. And I found that many of my most influential relationships were with people who were born and raised in the United States. I've lived in a lot of states all over the country, so I didn't have an issue with diversity of thought 
from that perspective. But I was like, I don't have enough friends who weren't born and raised in the U.S. <laughs> I need some friends who have a totally different experience, speak a totally different language. And uh, now I literally have a global network of colleagues who've had a similar experience. I can literally go to almost any country on this beautiful earth and connect with someone who is an Eisenhower fellow and immerse. Cause I'm also a very immersive person. That's what kind of creatives and arts do is just immerse you. And I didn't want to go on a study tour. I'm like, I want to live like the locals. And it's just, it's a beautiful thing to have friends all over the globe. Well, and travel too. I, I forget the quote and I'll, I'll butcher it. And I don't remember who said it, but it's something like if, if life is a book, not traveling is like only reading one chapter. And, right. and like, so, so you go to Rwanda and you've always hoped, you know, here we'd have more than half of people in our Congress would be women. Well, you go to Rwanda where it's happened. So it's like, okay, that's possible. Or you want to study, you know, how we take care of elders. And I'm no expert on Japan, but my sense is they have a much different cultural appreciation for the older generation. So you get over there and see, well, like that's how it could be. So it creates that sense of hope and, and optimism that, okay, they can do it in Japan. Maybe we can make some of those changes here. It seems to me a very valuable exercise. Absolutely. Now, frequent listeners of this podcast are probably tired of me covering this subject. But once again, it strikes me that my guests always seem to be innately curious people who love to learn. Vanessa's approach to her Eisenhower Fellowship is a great example. Her career had not been focused on the needs of the elderly. Heck, she worked at the Cartoon Network. But she wanted to learn more about best practices for taking care of older generations. So she decided to go to Japan. And an interest in women in politics and government led her to Rwanda. It's also clear that world travel and intentionally broadening her circle to include friends not born in the U.S., have enriched Vanessa's life immensely. And on that, let me clean up the quote I stumbled to reference there. It's attributed to St. Augustine, and he said, quote, The world is a book, and those who do not travel read only one page, unquote. Getting back to women in politics, I asked Vanessa to talk about her involvement with an organization called Vote, Run, Lead. Vote Run Lead is a phenomenal organization. I, I thank you for bringing that up. I just finished my term on uh, the board this year. I've served for seven years. actually met Aaron Velarde, the founder and CEO, at a women's philanthropy uh, conference in Chicago several years ago and was just so inspired by the work. And she actually encouraged me to go to Rwanda that the work that Vote Run Lead was doing after having worked for Mayor Shirley Franklin in Atlanta. Um, I just, I know the power of good municipal leadership. And Vote Run Lead's focus was on local and state governments and ensuring representation. I mean, there are more women in this country than men, and we need a representative government. Women are also really good elected leaders. We tend to collaborate more. Like, we got data for days that shows why women need a seat at the table. And uh, so I started supporting Vote Run's Vote Run Leads work 
through our philanthropic dollars at Wells Fargo and then was invited to join the board. And I love board service and to have an opportunity to support the CEO with her growth and development, growing the organization, but also ensuring a strong governance foundation so that the work could be sustained was so important. And every year, Aaron and the team just pushed the organization that much farther. They're focused on, you know, Senate races, House of Representatives, and because oftentimes, because of our civic education and some instances lack thereof, we don't always connect in with how important local elections are and local policy, local laws, and how it impacts our everyday life. We've got to do all of it. And we've got to be focused on what's happening nationally, but also at the local level, because that's how our democracy is set up. And so Vote Run Lead trains women to run for office and win, and particularly for women who sit and watch in their community and feel like, I could do better. But we don't always (laughs) get the encouragement that we need or even know how to start. And sometimes the way that we have conversations about what it takes to be an elected official is a bit deceptive, like, oh, you need a lot of money or, oh, you need a law degree. No, you need to care. You need to be willing to show up. You need to knock doors. And it's for people who want to make their communities better. I can't think of a better way than getting engaged either in nonprofit board service or elected service. I'm glad I learned about that. And, and it takes me to something I wanted to uh, read back to you as we approach, I've uh, got a couple more things I wanted to cover with you. And this is something that I heard you say and also saw in print from an interview that you did that you said is kind of your, almost a motto for you. And I'm going to read it back to you, which is one of my personal prayers is Lord, Help me to not ever have my privilege outpace my humanity so that I can be in any space and connect authentically with people. I thought that was beautiful. And I'd love just to hear you reflect on that. Thank you. Uh, That is that is who I am as a person. And it was actually inspired. uh, I serve on the SIFMA Foundation uh, board and we are the um, creators and and distributors of the stock market game. I think financial education is essential to human well-being and particularly for young people to understand the capital markets are an essential part of how our country works. We're a capital economy. And to understand that early so it doesn't seem so scary or inaccessible is super important. And uh, I've been very blessed my entire life to, to have resources and opportunity. I went to great public schools uh, in my childhood, K through 12, great college education. Very, very blessed. And and privilege is a beautiful thing. I think sometimes in our conversations now, we, we talk about privilege as a bad thing. Like, no, humans who have privilege should enjoy it. And I was in a conversation uh, actually on Wall Street where resources abound. <laughs> and um, Some of the perspective uh, in the conversation that was shared felt disconnected. Uh, There was a lot of othering going on and uh, the conversation uh, that we were having had other humans positioned as less than. And we were talking about humans that were unhoused. And what came up for me in that moment was, that's somebody's baby. 
right? That was somebody's little girl or son, and they're still human. And the description had them sound like wild animals. And that quote literally dropped in my spirit at the time. And I said, I am on a path uh, where I'm very blessed financially. I have a great community of family and friends. And I never want to get to a place where that experience disconnects me from humans. Um, I don't want to give up the privilege now, (laughs) Um, but I don't want it to outpace my humanity that I can't be with other humans. And that particular week, I literally went from a SIFMA board meeting in the basement of the Equitable Building at Capitol Grill in a bank vault having dinner, hopped on a plane, flew to El Paso, Texas, sat with a homeless veteran, and I loved every minute of it. And that's where that came from. I want to be able to be anywhere on this beautiful planet Earth and be able to connect authentically with the humans in life that I'm around. Well, I'm glad I asked you about that quote. And I'm going to I'm going to wrap up with one more from you, which is what you said this. What I really want is if someone's had an interaction with me. They feel better because I showed up. So you can add me to that list. I am really glad you said yes to my invitation to be on Blue Sky. You were a fantastic guest. I love what you're doing in St. Louis. They are lucky to have you. And I just can't thank you enough for your time and your energy and your positivity and your optimism. It's really infectious. Well, Bill, I appreciate you. Thank you for saying yes to this mission. You have done amazing work throughout your career. Uh, the book that you co-wrote with Ted, and, and I'll say this as a, as a quick story. When I first started at Cartoon Network, Ted Turner ha- had an all-employee meeting, and he just shares, and clearly you know his stories and how he shares. And um, one of the things that he said that literally is imprinted on my heart and in my mind and guides my leadership is don't make critical decisions when you're tired. And he talked about the um, Time Warner merger and, and what that meant. Uh, for him and his career. And so I just thank you for the work that you do in bringing stories and human expression to life because it matters and we need it. And now you're creating a platform for people to share more positive and more good. And we need that right now more than ever. So uh, we are mutually benefited from this conversation. And now that we've spoken, I'm stuck with you, like you said, and and I'm glad for it. Amen. (laughs) Thanks so much, Vanessa. By now, you can see why a friend recommended I speak with Vanessa and why she's had such a successful career and fulfilling life. And it bears repeating that now that she's made her way in the world, she constantly reminds herself, as she says not to let her privilege outpace her humanity. And I have to thank her for those kind words at the end. I promise she received no encouragement or compensation for saying those things, and I appreciated them, especially considering the source. 
hope you enjoyed and were uplifted by this Blue Sky conversation with Vanessa Cooksey of the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Before you go, if you could take a few minutes to give us a review or rating, we'd love to get the feedback. And if you like this content and haven't done so already, please follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and the host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.